This is News Source 1 Michiana. Your balanced source of news for the community. Welcome to Michiana Speak Out with Keith Thews. An interactive podcast where we can talk to you or you can speak to us. The show begins right after the national news. News Nation This Hour, I'm Vic Vaughn. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have delivered messages honoring civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Both called upon Americans to continue what they called King's unfinished work, called upon the Senate to pass legislation on voting and elections. On this federal holiday that honors him, it's not just enough to praise him. We must commit to his unfinished work to deliver jobs and justice, to protect the sacred right to vote, the right from which all other rights flow. Truly honor the legacy of the man we celebrate today. We must continue to fight for the freedom to vote, for freedom for all. In virtual remarks from the White House this morning, Senate Democrats insist they'll try this week to pass that legislation. News Nation's Rashad Hudson. At this point, the legislation has zero Republican support and moderate Democrats will not agree to a rule change that would allow Democrats to pass the bill without a single Republican vote. The Senate is off Monday in observance of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, but will return Tuesday to take up voting rights. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy's warning that the ongoing surge of Omicron infections hasn't yet peaked nationally, that cases overall are still climbing, and described the next few weeks as having the potential of being very difficult for parts of the country. Says average COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths are still rising. He says they have begun to plateau in the Northeast, specifically in New York City and New Jersey. Mourners gathered this morning in Philadelphia for the funeral services of nine children and three adults killed in a duplex fire just five days into the new year, Philadelphia's deadliest fire in more than a century. The funeral procession was followed by services at Temple University's Leah Chorus Center. The FBI calls Saturday's 10-hour hostage standoff at a synagogue in Fort Worth, Texas, a terrorism-related matter that targeted the Jewish community. The suspect's been identified as 44-year-old British national Malik Faisal Akram. He was found dead late Saturday at Congregation Beth Israel after the last hostages ran out. Find News Nation on your cable or satellite provider and stay up to date around the clock at NewsNationNow.com and the News Nation Now app. I'm Vic Vaughn. From Feature Story News in Washington, I'm Simon Marks. International efforts are continuing in an attempt to reach Tonga after an undersea volcano erupted, spewing ash more than 12 miles into the air. The island chain has lost most communication with the outside world as a result of two weekend eruptions that brought tsunami warnings across the Pacific. Now Australia and New Zealand are sending reconnaissance flights to assess the damage. Dave Tappin is the former chief chief geologist in Tonga and a tsunami expert. It is very isolated, it's very beautiful and the volcanoes indeed are are absolutely fantastic things but most volcanoes are. There are many volcanic islands like the Canary Islands or Hawaii, they're beautiful places but there is an inbuilt hazard. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says drinking water is urgently needed in Tonga with the major population centres blanketed in volcanic ash. And the first death has been confirmed. A British woman, Angela Glover, was reportedly swept away by waves resulting from the tsunami.
Thousands of people in the US and Canada have been left without power. After a winter storm hit the region, 80 million people are under a weather advisory. From FSN's bureau in New York, where high winds are expected today, Sarah Walton reports. States of emergency have been declared in Virginia, Georgia, North and South Carolina. Thousands of flights have been cancelled and more than 145,000 people are without power. People are being advised to stay off the roads in the southeast, especially overpasses and roads at high altitude. Strong winds have also prompted warnings of coastal flooding in New York City and Connecticut. Two teenagers have been arrested in the British city of Manchester in the investigation into the terror attack on a Texas synagogue over the weekend. The main suspect, British national Malik Faisal Akram, was shot dead after the standoff with police in the Dallas suburb. With more on the UK arrests, FSN's Benji Hire from our London bureau. Details of the ages or genders of the pair held in custody have not yet been revealed, but Greater Manchester Police is liaising with local communities and is continuing to assist in the US inquiry. All of the hostages at the synagogue were freed unharmed. Akram's family has apologised to the victims and claim he was suffering from mental health issues. Russia is denying US claims that it's looking for a pretext to invade Ukraine. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov called the US warning of a Russian sabotage operation underway in eastern Ukraine total disinformation. Information. And a Paris court has fined French presidential candidate Eric Zemmour €10,000 for engaging in hate speech. The far-right former broadcaster called migrant children thieves, rapists and murderers in a TV appearance last year. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN. With FSN Spotlight, I'm Simon Marks. Today, why isn't Russia backing down as tensions mount over Ukraine? Just 10 days ago, some in Washington's foreign policy community argued that Vladimir Putin was seeking an off-ramp in his confrontation with the West, looking for a way to avoid Washington's threat of punishing sanctions if his forces invade Ukraine. But after a week of fruitless diplomacy in Europe, that argument now seems to lie in tatters. Putin feels the need now to restructure what he sees as still the major calamity of the 20th century, meaning the collapse of the Soviet Union. Matthias Matisse is a senior fellow focusing on Europe for the US Council on Foreign Relations. Vladimir Putin, he says, thinks he's in the driving seat. Russia clearly is acting from a position of strength and, and is kind of pushing its security demands to, to a much higher level than it has over the last, let's say, 10 years. What do I mean a position of strength? First of all, it's the beginning of the winter and Europe is heavily dependent on on Russian gas, right? Russia has very high foreign reserves right now. Actually, second to China and and Japan, anywhere close to $600 billion, which makes it much better able to withstand potential uh, sanctions. The Russians have given the US until the end of this week to provide security guarantees from NATO. The Americans said on Friday they think the Kremlin is trying to create a pretext in eastern Ukraine for Russian forces to invade. The main news again, international efforts are continuing in a bid to reach Tonga after the undersea volcano eruptions over the weekend that spewed ash more than 12 miles into the air. Nearly a quarter of a million people in the US and Canada are without power after a winter storm hit the region. There's more snow coming later this week. And a Paris court has fined far-right French presidential candidate Eric Zemmour €10,000 for engaging in hate speech. And that is the latest feature story news. Simon Marks reporting.
Happy Martin Luther King Day afternoon. It is Monday the 17th. You're listening to Michigan Speak Out on a very ice-covered afternoon. Yes, we were not expecting mixed precipitation in the Michigan area, but it came and it has coated the roads, coated our vehicles, and caused all sorts of nightmare situations in the Michigan area. Uh, word from a truck driver at the place I work at, Duncan Systems, just northeast of Bristol, is that points around Bristol are slick with icing conditions. The worst appears to be to the east in LaGrange County. They have it very bad in LaGrange County with icing. There has already been uh, a truck overturn on US 30 in Kosciuszko County. Um, that is on the front of our podcast courtesy of Willie 103.5 and Ham Radio Operator Spencer, KD9CVS. Um, he shared a couple of those pictures uh, from the U.S. 30 area. Not good driving conditions. This winter weather advisory started around 1030 to 1045, I think somewhere in there. I don't have the right exact time, but it doesn't matter. And we're supposed to end at 4. Well, they have extended the winter weather advisory until 10 p.m. tonight. We're still expecting icing conditions, and uh, I posted that. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick Rogers, uh, for posting that to us and the hams. So let's get on with the official bulletins and forecast from the National Weather Service on this icing holiday. Winter weather advisory now in effect until 10 p.m. estate this evening. Asterisk what? Light freezing drizzle or very light freezing rain mixed with snow at times producing a light glaze of ice along with snow accumulations of an inch or less. Asterisk where, much of northern Indiana, far southwest lower Michigan and northwest Ohio counties near the Indiana border. Asterisk when, until 10 p.m. is state this evening. Asterisk impacts, a glaze of ice will make many untreated roads extremely slippery. Asterisk additional details. Surface weather observations and road reports indicated widespread freezing drizzle and very light freezing rain were causing a light glaze on many roads impacting travel. Precautionary slash preparedness actions. If you are traveling this afternoon or evening, exercise extreme caution. Leave extra time to reach your destination and allow plenty of space between your vehicle and the one in front of you. Consider delaying travel if possible. Detailed forecast M.L. King Day snow and freezing rain likely before 5 p.m., then a chance of snow. Cloudy, with a high near 31. Northwest wind around 15 mph, with gusts as high as 20 mph chance of precipitation is 60%. Little or no ice accumulation expected. Total daytime snow accumulation of less than a half inch possible. Tonight a chance of snow and freezing drizzle before 8 p.m., then a slight chance of snow between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. cloudy, with a low around 21. Southwest wind around 10 mph chance of precipitation is 30%. Tuesday mostly cloudy, with a high near 36. South wind 5 to 15 mph, with gusts as high as 20 mph. All right, I encourage everyone out there to please, underneath this thread, give us the latest on the storm, ice reports, road condition reports, 
Uh, it will be people helping people network, as Mark McGill would call it. Anyway, it is national holiday, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Uh, did you do anything to celebrate? Did you go out and help those in need? Uh, maybe you just stayed home and celebrated. No mail today. Schools are closed, a lot of them. Um, people just remembering and, and, and seeing the remembrance of such a, a great man. And uh, we have a couple of things to uh, remember Dr. Martin Luther King. On our main part of the program today, we are going to be playing in full Dr. Martin Luther King's final speech in Memphis for sanitation workers, the mountaintop speech, where he's been to the mountaintop. It was recorded on the night of a very bad thunderstorm going through Memphis. Warnings were out. It was horrible. But Dr. Martin Luther King looked back at his civil rights career uh, looking forward to the future of where civil rights and white and black relations would go and uh, gave us a bit of a history lesson and uh, spoke of times that would also be very similar to this day and age. We have Black Lives Matter. We've had the protest with George Floyd and all the stuff that happened in 2020. And here it is now, 2020. Too. So uh, think about where we've been and where we've gone. And then the, at the end of the program, we have Paul Harvey also with a Martin Luther King Jr. story, a pretty neat one uh, to close out the podcast today. Again, just please be careful out there. Allow extra, extra time for your, your commute this afternoon. Stay home if you can at all help it. It's still going on until 10 o'clock tonight, the Winter Weather Advisory. So let's go ahead and turn things over to Pastor Joel, who has Happy and Whole in him. And then after our announcements, we'll go on to the Mountaintop speech in full from YouTube from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in early April 1968, the night before he was shot on the motel balcony. Lorraine Motel, and also Jesse Jackson was there when he was killed. He is part of that team down there. So here is Pastor Joel Irvin. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. So who is the devil, and what is he up to? Well, he's not a red pointy-tailed creature with horns, though he'd sure like us to think he is comical and unimpressive. The Bible says the devil, or Satan, is a supernatural cosmic being opposed to God, our Creator. Jude 6 and Revelation 12 indicate he was a great angel who embraced evil and led a rebellion before he and his collaborators were cast down to earth. Now, if you're hoping Pastor Joel will speculate further on the devil's origins, you're going to be disappointed because Scripture doesn't tell us much, and when God's Word stops speaking, it's prudent to do likewise. The devil first appears on the scene in Genesis 3. And what is he up to? Seeking to deceive the first humans. Satan's hatred of God makes humanity his particular target. Because you and I, my friend, we have been granted singular privilege. God made us in his image. 
Not even the angels in glory have been granted our unique status. And this is why the devil hates us so much. He hates that we're made in God's likeness. He wants nothing more than to destroy you and I, our family, our friends, our neighbors. Mark my words, friends. The devil has a plan for your life. And if you're dismissive of him, Satan has you right where he wants you. And I hope to make us increasingly aware of how the devil operates. And his tactics have not changed since the Garden of Eden. His tactic, his strategy is to disguise himself so we won't recognize who it is. Calvin notes that he chose a serpent to keep Adam and Eve from recognizing, seeing his true self. And we read in Mark 5.13 that evil spirits can inhabit animals. So why a serpent, Joel? Good question. Well, one reason is the serpent is a crafty creature, Genesis 3.1. Jesus himself says the serpent is shrewd or wise, Matthew 10.16. And crawling on its belly, well, that's a posture of humility the opposite of the devil's true nature. The devil sees the serpent's natural gifts are ideal for his own twisted ends. So through the serpent, the devil says to the woman in Genesis 3.1, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. And the devil says, fake news. He tells her in verse four, you will not certainly die. Do you see where Satan starts? What he first looks to do? He wants us to reject God's word. He wants us to believe it is not trustworthy. His question, did God really say? Is an invitation to take the posture of standing over God's truth instead of simply saying, Amen, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And Satan comes in humility, disguised, speaking a new word that he promises is better news than God's. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. My friends, Satan is the originator of fake news. His story is the first lie. Jesus says in John 8, 44, that the, devil's lie, that the devil lies because it is his native language. And he adds that the devil is the father of lies. And all fake news sense is the result of our first parents believing his first false report. How many people today are living a lie because they believe fake news? And how can we guard ourselves against fake news so that we're not believing a lie? Well, let me ask you. Who do you most listen to? There may be hundreds of voices that come at you every week. You realize that? So let me ask you, how often are you listening to God, taking in what is true? Yes, it's as simple as being in your Bible constantly, daily. I say this as someone who is also prone to believe fake news. That's why I must be in the truth all the time. I say this as a pastor who has witnessed Satan wreck so many people. I say this as a pastor who gets a half an hour or so on a Sunday to speak, and I'm competing with the hours of other voices that people will hear all week long, all making promises, and often disguised in humility. Folks desperately need to know the good news of God's Word in order to recognize 
the fake news. So get going on a Bible reading plan and make 2022 a year of daily good news reports. We need God's word in our souls like we need pure water in our bodies. This is why I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. This actually minimizes my chances of proof texting fake news. And it's why I tell my congregation not simply to trust me. They need to read the same word I preach and pray over it and work it out on their own. And I rejoice that so many are getting the real scoop because they come up to me or they call me up and they say, Pastor Joel, do you see this promise of God? And do you see what this means for my life? And I smile and give a simple praise to God. And I thank him that he is giving a preview of Satan being crushed under our feet. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. News source 1 Michiana is actively monitoring the Russia-Ukraine border crisis and will keep you informed on the latest developments on our Facebook group. This is a serious global issue to follow. Stay tuned for more. Looking for Dana Lash's absurd truth? It has been replaced by the Michael Medved Show here on News Source 1 Michiana. Thank you very kindly, my friends. As I listen to Ralph Abernathy and his eloquent and generous introduction, and uh, then thought about myself, I wondered who he was talking about. <laughs> it's always good to have your closest friend and associate to say something good about you. And Ralph Abernathy is the best friend that I have in the world. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning. You reveal that you are determined to go on anyhow. Something is happening in Memphis, something is happening in our world. And you know, if I were standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, And the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt. And I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through 
or rather to cross the Red Sea through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. And I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discuss the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire. And I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders. But I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I'm named had his habitat, and I would watch Martin Luther as he tacks his 95 theses on the door at the Church of Wittenberg, but I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself, but I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world.
the masses of people are rising up, and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. Another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world, it's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. Also in the human rights revolution, if something isn't done and done in a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. I can remember... I can remember when Negroes were just going around, as Ralph has said, so often scratching where they didn't itch and laughing when they were not tickled. <laughs> but that day is all over. We mean business now, and we are determined to gain our rightful place in God's world. And that's all this whole thing is about. We aren't engaged in any negative protest and in any negative arguments with anybody. We are saying that we are determined to be men, we are determined to be people. We are saying, we are saying that we are God's children. And that we are God's children, we don't have to live like we are forced to live. Now, what does all of this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. 
We've got to stay together and maintain unity. You know, whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. But whenever the slaves get together, something happens in Pharaoh's court, and he cannot hold the slaves in slavery. When the slaves get together, that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. Now let us maintain unity. Secondly, let us keep the issues where they are. The issue is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. Now, we've got to keep attention on that. That's always the problem with a little violence. You know what happened the other day, and the press dealt only with the window breaking. I read the article. They very seldom got around to mentioning the fact that 1,300 sanitation workers are on strike and that Memphis is not being fair to them and that Mayor Loeb is in dire need of a doctor. They didn't get around to that. Now we're going to march again, and we've got to march again, in order to put the issue where it is supposed to be. force everybody to see that there are 1,300 of God's children here suffering, sometimes going hungry, going through dark and dreary nights, wondering how this thing is going to come out. That's the issue. And we've got to say to the nation, we know how it's coming out. For when people get caught up with that which is right, and they are willing to sacrifice for it, there is no stopping point short of victory. We aren't going to let any may stop us. We are masters in our nonviolent movement in disarming police forces. They don't know what to do. I've seen them so often. I remember in Birmingham, Alabama, when we were in that majestic struggle there, 
we would move out of the 16th Street Baptist Church day after day. By the hundreds, we would move out, and Bull Connor would tell them to send the dogs for And they did come. But we just went before the dogs singing, ain't going to let nobody turn me around. Bull Connor next would say, turn the fire hoses on. And as I said to you the other night, Bull Connor didn't know history. He knew a kind of physics that somehow didn't relate to the trans physics that we knew about. And that was the fact that there was a certain kind of fire that no water could put out. And we went before the fire hoses. We had known water. If we were Baptists or some other denomination, we had been immersed. If we were Methodists and some others, we had been sprinkled. But we knew water. That couldn't stop us. And we just went on before the dogs, and we would look at them, and we'd go on before the water hoses, and we would look at it, and we'd just go on singing, Over my head, I see freedom in there. And then we would be thrown into paddy wagons, and sometimes we were stacked in there like sardines in a can. They would throw us in, and old bull would say, Take them off. And they did, and we would just go on in the paddy wagon singing, We Shall Overcome. And every now and then we'd get in jail and we'd see the jailers looking through the windows, being moved by our prayer and being moved by our words and our song. And there was a power there which Bull Connor couldn't adjust, adjust to. And so we ended up transforming Bull into a steer, and we won our struggle in Birmingham. <laughs> now, we've got to go on in Memphis just like that. I call upon you to be with us when we go out Monday. Now about injunctions. We have an injunction, and we are going into court tomorrow morning to fight this illegal, unconstitutional injunction. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in... China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights.
So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. We are going on. We need all of you. You know what's beautiful to me? It's to see all of these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire set up in his bones. And whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos who said, When God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. And I want to commend the preachers under the leadership of these noble men, James Lawson, one who has been in this struggle for many years. He's been to jail for struggling. He's been kicked out of Vanderbilt University for this struggling. But he's still going on fighting for the rights of his people. Reverend Ralph Jackson, Billy Kyle, I could just go right on down the list. It's time will not permit, but I want to thank all of them. And I want you to thank them. Because so often, preachers aren't concerned about anything but themselves. And I'm always happy to see a relevant ministry. It's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder in all of its symbolism. But ultimately, people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey. But God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee. This is what we have to do. Now, the other thing we'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action. with the power of economic withdrawal. Now, we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare us with white society in America. 
We are poor. Never stop and forget that collectively, that means all of us together, collectively we are richer than all the nations in the world with the exception of nine. Did you ever think about that? After you leave the United States, Soviet Russia, Great Britain, West Germany, France, and I can name others, the American Negro collectively is richer than most nations of the world. We have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than all of the exports of the United States and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? That's power right there if we know how to prove it. We don't have to argue with anybody. We don't have to curse and go around acting bad with our words. We don't need any bricks and bottles. We don't need any Molotov cocktails. We just need to go around to these stores and to these massive industries in our country and say, God sent us by here to say to you that you're not treating his children right. And we come by here to ask you to make the first item on your agenda fair treatment where God's children are concerned. Now, if you are not prepared to do that, we do have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. So as a result of this, we're asking you tonight to go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola in Memphis. Go by and tell them not to buy sealed test milk. Tell them not to buy what is all the bread, Wonder Bread. And what is other bread come to Jesse? Tell them not to buy hard bread. As Jesse Jackson has said up to now, only the garbage men have been feeling pain. Now we must kind of redistribute the pain. are choosing these companies because they haven't been fair in their hiring policies, and we are choosing them because they can begin the process of saying they are going to support the needs and the rights of these men who are on strike, and then they can move on town, downtown and tell Mayor Loeb to do what is right. I 
And not only that, we've got to strengthen black institutions. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money in Tri-State Bank. We want a bank-in movement in Memphis. Go by the Savings and Loan Association. I'm not asking you something that we don't do ourselves in SCLC. Judge Hooks and others will tell you that we have an account here in the Savings and Loan Association from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We are telling you to follow what we are doing. Put your money there. You have six or seven black insurance companies here in the city of Memphis. Take out your insurance now. We want to have an insurance in. Now, these are some practical things that we can do. We begin the process of building a great economic base. And at the same time, we are putting pressure where it really hurts. I ask you to follow through here. Now let me say as I move to my conclusion that we've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. We've got to see it through. When we have our march, you need to be there. If it means leaving work, if it means leaving school, be there. Be concerned about your brother, you may not be on strike, but either we go up together or we go down together. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. One day a man came to Jesus. He wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points, he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now, that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. 
He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man, because he had the capacity to project the eye into the bow and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we began to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Bloody Pass. You know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The 
question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination. And let us move on. In these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be, we have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a diminished black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, Are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing, and I said, Yes. And the next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through, and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. It said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, While it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, 
I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze, because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960, when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the Founding Fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962, when Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. Black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama, to see the great movement there. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked, and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats. I talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over 
And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My name. The rest of the story. Marty just plain felt guilty. He didn't need a reason. He simply felt that way most of the time. Give you an example. When Marty was 12, his 11-year-young brother slid down the banister, shot off the end of the banister, accidentally collided with grandmother, knocked the old woman out cold, and Marty thought she was dead. But here's the strange part. Marty blamed himself. Maybe he thought he could have prevented the accident or something. Anyway, Marty took it so personally that he went upstairs to one of the bedrooms, opened the window, and jumped out. Jumped right out the window. Well, as it turned out, neither Marty nor his grandmother was in the least injured, but let me explain something further. Many months later, that same grandmother became ill, was rushed to the hospital. There was a parade going on in town, so Marty slipped out to see the parade. That's right. Grandma died in the hospital, and Marty, once more overcome by irrational guilt, went home, went upstairs to the bedroom, and jumped out the window again. This was not for show now. Nobody was watching, and yet, as he had before, Marty fell two stories. Picked himself up and dusted himself off completely unhurt and most significantly feeling as though he had somehow atoned for his imagined negligence. I don't think anybody can say for sure, but I have an idea of where this needlessly guilty conscience came from. And that's the rest of the story. When Marty was six... His best friends were the grocer's sons who lived across the street. They spent a lot of time together until one day. The boy's mother answered the door. Marty asked, can the guys come out and play? And the woman said her sons were not at home. But Marty had seen them come home only minutes before, and he told her so. Well, the woman stiffened. All right, Marty wanted the truth. The boys were no longer permitted to play with him. She gave Marty the reason and slammed the door. That, quite plausibly, was the day young Marty started feeling guilty for everything, even the things that were not his fault. You never, before this last four minutes, you never knew the child who jumped out a second-story window as a personally prescribed penance for sins that he never committed. You never knew that little boy who went home crying when he lost what seemed like the two best friends he'd ever have. But eventually, the little boy grew into a man, and he learned not to misplace blame, and more important, to place it where it belonged. You see, the reason the grocer's wife decided to keep her sons away from Marty, to keep her sons away from six-year-old Martin Luther King Jr., was the predictable one. The grocer's family was white, and Martin was not. You'll recall that toward the end of his life, Martin Luther King Jr. told us he had a dream, a dream, that one day his own children would be judged, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now you have revisited the day that dream 
was born. Because now you know the rest of the story. Thanks for watching. Check out some of our other videos and don't forget to like the video and subscribe. Just click the logo on the left. This is News Source 1 Michiana, Elkhart South Bend.